One, two, three. Testing. Check. <laughs> Do you remember Pretty Little Liars? Maybe you remember the show. Or maybe you're trying to forget the show. I wouldn't blame you. But I remember Pretty Little Liars from the books. I read the Pretty Little Liars books before the show came out. At the time, as a teenager, I thought the books were great. They were thrilling, mysterious, scandalous. All the vibes that a young teen girl wants, right? So here's the premise. Set in the fictional Rosewood, Pennsylvania, the plot follows five best friends whose secrets are consistently threatened by the anonymous A, who begins harassing them after the disappearance of their clique leader, Allison De Laurentiis. The original Pretty Little Liar series was divided into four books. It was the perfect length for a well-thought-out, well-planned series. When it comes to mystery, I think that you shouldn't really drag it out because then there's no payoff. I just want to know who the killer is, right? Well, hold that thought, because on June 8th of 2010, the show adaption of Pretty Little Liars debuted. It was always in the plans to have a show. Um, I didn't know that when I was a kid. And girl, of course I was hooked to the show. It was riveting, better than I could have asked for. It was thrilling, cheeky, scandalous, and it was for the most part faithful to the books. Now, I was thoroughly enjoying the TV series, and I was not the only one. After the rating success of the first 10 episodes, ABC Family ordered an additional 12 episodes. The series finale was viewed by an estimated 1.41 million viewers, and it had the second highest rating of any cable TV series that aired that night. Given the success of the show, what do you think happened? Greed. Capitalism, baby. ABC was sitting on a cash cow, and boy, were they ready to milk it. They made 160 episodes over seven seasons. Oh, and bye-bye were the days of staying faithful to the book. Their number one goal was to create artificial scandal with no desire to follow plot lines or character arcs. Pivoting a little bit, I want to make my point. In my opinion, the best stories have the end of the series planned from the beginning. Harry Potter, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, all series that had the end planned from the beginning, or at least some semblance of where they were going. A goal, so to speak. Because if not, you may get caught up in the desire to give shock value over plot. Gossip Girl, Game of Thrones, I'm looking at you. Well, where do you think Pretty Little Liars series falls on this spectrum? Way at the end of Looneyville shock value with not-so-crazy non-existent plot and arc, okay? The show was not well thought out at all, so this initial big mystery of who A was, the big payoff, what we've been waiting for for seven years, was not planned out and therefore chosen at the end of the series for shock value. And boy, was it shocking. With no foreshadowing in any of the previous seasons, A turned out to be an unironic evil twin. What in the soap opera? Despicable. Unforgivable. <sighs> I digress. The series was an initial decent show that turned out to be trash. And I truly believe that its downfall was not having A chosen from the beginning because there was no way to foreshadow who it was going to be. In the story of salvation for humanity, we are starting at the beginning. Here we find the fall of man. And this brings on the need for a hero, the need for a savior. But who is writing the story other than the author and the finisher of our salvation, Yahweh? 
And he's a good writer because all the way back at the beginning, thousands of years before the birth of a baby named Jesus, before the cross, there was foreshadowing. There was always a plan. There was a promise, a promise of a redeemer. We see this when God says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Let's talk about it. Welcome to the Basic Bible Babe podcast. I'm your Basic Bible Babe, Brooke Ashley, and I'm not a theologian, but chances are you aren't either. But you don't have to be one to understand and fall in love with the Bible. So here, the goal is simple, to motivate each other to move past those things that stop us from reading the Bible and to become a people that understand and appreciate the Bible for what it is, incredible. So remember, the Word of God is for you and it's relevant to your life today. Let's dive in. We're still in chapter three. Last week, we saw the serpent deceive Eve. We saw Eve eat the fruit, and then we saw Adam eat the fruit. And the world knows this as the fall of man. We also saw God come in at the cool of the day to address them. Remember, he didn't come in raging. He was very reasonable, but he heard what they had to say. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve fell into sin, though, and no matter what they said, there had to be consequences. God warned it from the beginning, the wages of sin are death. So here, we're going to have God dole out the consequences and let them know kind of what's going to happen now. So let's discuss those. We're starting at verse 14. God firstly addresses the serpent, okay? So up until this point, he hasn't even talked to the serpent, okay? He asked Adam and Eve first a question, but with the serpent, he does not ask them a question because the serpent had nothing to learn. He was wicked and he was always going to be wicked. So I want to read you the curse upon the serpent and then we're going to discuss. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. He continues and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's very interesting because this curse addresses the animal of the serpent and Satan himself. So we see this part of the curse addressed to the serpent. It addresses not only Satan, but it also addresses the animal that is the serpent. It's twofold. So in the beginning, he's talking to the animal when he said, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all feasts of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust you shall eat for all of the days of your life. As you may have heard before, it was very likely that snakes used to have feetsies, okay? Before this moment, I don't know what is more terrifying, the thought of a snake with or without feetsies, you know? Um, So what I did was I kind of like looked up pictures of like, what does a snake look like with feet? It's kind of cute. It's kind of like, just like, like a lizard, you know? Now it's a snake and snakes definitely look more terrifying without feet because, you know, they're slithering. They look sneaky. Either way, I think it's very interesting that God cursed the actual animal, Was Satan possessing the animal? And is that why the animal was punished? Because he allowed Satan to possess him? I don't know. The Bible never addresses it. 
But either way, the actual animal was cursed and transformed into something very scary. And I bet when Adam and Eve saw that transformation, they were scared of what their punishment would be. Imagine you see an ugly transformation on this once beautiful creature. You're like, what's coming for me next, right? But then God switches over in verse 15 and he's addressing Satan rather than the serpent the adversary. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This brings us back to our opening topic about God already having written our story from the beginning. He didn't need to rewrite our story because we took a side track. He already had it planned out from the beginning. He didn't have to go back to the drawing board. Our Redeemer Jesus was already in place, ready to be our Savior. God says that there will be enmity between us and Satan. Enmity is the idea of ill will, hatred, and a mutual antagonism. We hate each other. Don't get it twisted. The devil hates us. And we, for the most part, right, we hate him. We don't want to be in cahoots with Satan, even people that we see who are like not with God. And even Satanists don't say that they're like, oh, we actually believe in Satan. Most of them don't actually believe in Satan. There's this weird disconnect that we have with the term Satan. Like we don't want to be associated with him. Then God says that the offspring of the woman shall bruise the devil's head and the devil will bruise his heel which is the prophecy of Jesus coming. Charles Spurgeon describes the devil bruising Jesus's heel like this. Jesus, in taking on humanity, brought himself near to Satan's domain so Satan could strike him. That bruised heel is painful enough. Behold, our Lord, in his human nature, sore bruised, he was betrayed, bound, accused, buffeted, scourged, spit upon, He was nailed to the cross. He hung there in thirst and in fever and darkness and desertion. This was the way that Satan bruised the heel of Jesus, of the offspring of the woman. However, Jesus has the higher ground and strikes the enemy's head. Jesus remained sinless through it all, died and rose again and foiled the devil's plan to take down mankind with him. He redeemed all of humanity and thus bruised the devil's head. Okay, now God addresses the woman and boy, oh boy, is it a punishment? Okay, it seems like the harshest out of them all because I'm a woman. I'm listening to this. I'm like, but why? Okay. Just like it's meant to be though. A punishment is not meant to feel good. I'm supposed to look at this punishment and feel like, you know, like it's a punishment. It's meant to be something that I don't like. So he starts off like this. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. That is kind of self-explanatory, right? It hurts to have a baby a lot. Not that I'm experienced, okay? But some describe it as equal to or worse than breaking a bone or having a heart attack. And do not get me started on the monthly pain that is menstruation, PMS, and menstrual cramps, all part of our body's pain in childbearing. I've also heard an expanding thought on this, that pain in childbearing could be a reference to infertility. 
that before sin, there would never be such thing as infertility. But now because of the fall, some women experience the pain of trying to conceive. This is better seen when we read the King James Version where it says, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, right? In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. So it's the idea of there being sorrow in the conception of the baby. Women having struggles throughout humanity to have children, whereas before it would have been just easy to have a baby to become pregnant. Now it's not. And now many women have to struggle with infertility. Our punishment continues, okay? Next, God says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I have a husband, okay? And I can say that, yeah, sometimes, no, all the time, I would love to be contrary. Would I like to be in charge? 100%. I think most women, the idea of, and it's not just specifically talking about the husband, it's talking about men in general. We have this adversity to wanting to be subservient. I don't know if subservient is the word, I just try to use it because it was a big word, but we have this idea where we don't want to be under rank to a man, right? We don't want to be told what to do. Nobody wants to be told what to do. And now you are telling me that my whole life, I am going to have to be told what to do by a man. Yeah. I'm not going to like that. Nobody is. Okay. But let's break it down a little bit. Man's position over woman was established already before the fall. Man was always going to be in charge. So the punishment only brought on the woman's contrariness and aversion to man's leadership, which we have clearly seen throughout history and especially in our culture today. Women want what men have, but before the fall, this desire to be contrary wouldn't have even existed. So I think we all recognize that the concept of man having dominion over woman is not liked at all. Okay. Besides by men, (laughs) I describe it like this. Men and women are equal. We have equal worth and value in the eyes of the Lord. However, men and women's roles are different, you guys. In the Bible, they are clearly given different roles. We've been given different jobs, like it or not, you guys. But this is Bible, okay? So if you're not a Christian, dude, ignore everything I'm saying. But if you believe in the Bible, this is what the Bible says. Okay, last but not least. God addresses the man, okay? It's about time. I think women are tired of taking on all the hard stuff, but here we go. He starts off by saying, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, okay? Let's just address that little thing. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. This call to his obedience in reference to Eve was very interesting to me, okay? Because Adam loved Eve. A lot of times we as people, we idolize love as the thing that has to be obeyed and followed above all else, right? That's like what TV shows and like fairy tales are all about, right? Like if it's love, like you almost have to do it. If it's because you love something or someone, then you have to follow it because that's how you feel, okay? That the idea of love and obeying love is more important than obeying God, We get caught up in this when we have relationships with people that we know God would not approve of, but we love them 
or when we allow those that we love to pull us away from God's will. So Adam was guilty of the same thing that many humans struggle with. He allowed his love for Eve to outrank his love for God. We continue with the curse on man. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. This says a couple of things, but especially that sin made the once very fruitful earth cursed. It was not as abundantly fruitful. We still have fruit, but can you imagine what it looked like before it was cursed? Now we have desert land and places that can't produce fruit because of Adam. Weeds are more abundant than fruit nowadays. We have so much beauty in this world now, right? We have waterfalls and these wonders of the world, but can you imagine a world untouched by sin? Fruitful. There would be no such thing as famine, but the ground is now cursed. The Bible says that by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And with that, the man is cursed to work until the day he dies. It's a harsh curse, man. This is the curse in its entirety. To man, woman, and the serpent. It begs the question, are the consequences too dire? Was God too harsh? All they did was eat an apple. But God actually showed so much mercy in these moments. Death was always the consequence of sin. That was the promise from the beginning, but God provided a sacrifice so that way he could prolong their life. The Bible says that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. From the beginning, God warned that the wages of sin was death. So before the fall, there was no such thing as death. Death had not happened to any living thing, no animals, no human. But because of sin, there needed to be atonement. God used the killing of the animal to atone the sins of Adam and Eve, pay their debt of death, and to clothe them. You know, because God said that he clothed them with skins. What Adam and Eve didn't know at the time was that animal sacrifice was going to be the standard held by the people of God until the coming of Jesus Christ. Once again, your story was plotted out from the beginning. And when Jesus came, he would take on the wages of sin and become our perfect sacrifice, which is why we call him the Lamb of God. But as you may know, most Jewish people do not accept Christ as their Messiah, so they actually still practice animal sacrifice to pay the debt of their sin to this day. But now the Lord had to take Adam and Eve out of the garden to protect the other trees, like the tree of life, which if they had eaten would have made them live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, which is an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And to this day, no one has found the Garden of Eden. It was also never historically mentioned in the Bible again. There's two theories on what could have happened to the Garden of Eden. The first theory is that it was supernaturally hidden by God, literally unable to be found, right? He's like supernaturally guarding it and guarding our eyes. The second theory is that it was left to dissolve to the nature of this new earth surrounded by sin. 
and the garden eventually just kind of dissipated and became part of the earth and its regular geography, okay? So it's there and all the trees are not fruitful like they were because of sin. They don't have like the same power that they did, you know? I personally believe the first. However, I do also believe that sin destroyed so much of the original design of this earth that it's very possible that it was the second. And that is Genesis chapter three, part two. You can follow us on Instagram at the basic Bible babe. You can also rate and review us on Apple podcasts or Spotify. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back in two weeks to discuss Genesis chapter four. Remember, we're only doing this bi-weekly now, so not next Thursday, not this Thursday, but next Thursday. All right, I'll see you there. I hope this podcast is encouraging you to get into your word. That's the main thing. I can read this all day and tell you all about what's going on, but what's most important is that you have the desire and the hunger to get into the word for yourself. That would be amazing. Okay, I hope it's encouraging you to learn more about God. And I also want to encourage you that the story God has for you is so good, even when we haven't been so good. God has already set up your redemption arc, and his name is Jesus Christ. I encourage you to let him write your story. Do you remember the show? Do you remember the show? Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember the show? Do you remember Pretty Little Liars? Okie dokie.